the words still echo off the mountain. Yesterday, the king of glory, the king of our freedom, was coming down on a donkey. And the shouts of Hosanna rung out. Freedom from oppression, freedom from all of these Roman rule was just moments away from being released, from being set free, from being removed from our lives. Yesterday, as people shouted those hosannas, they took off their cloaks because the, the road was not good enough for this king. They ripped branches off the trees, swung them in the air, put them down, and paved the way for the king to come to his throne. But that was yesterday. Today is a different story. You see, 2,000 years later, we, we've, we've named that day. We have a name for that day. We, Christian, the Christian community calls that Palm Sunday. We have a name for that day where Jesus is come and he is named to be king. The people are saying we've had enough and they name Jesus king that day. But they don't realize the mountains that are in their way. And they don't realize the mountains that Jesus has come to remove from their lives. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. Today we're going to talk about this story from Palm Sunday, from the Sunday where Jesus rode in on that donkey and shouts of Hosanna rung out to what happened next. We've named Palm Sunday. Nobody's bothered to name Monday because Mayhem Monday just doesn't sound right. That's not going to instill in anybody any sort of loving thoughts about Jesus to say, hey, after Palm Sunday came Mayhem Monday and we're so excited about Mayhem Monday. But today we're going to spend some time looking at what happened the following day. And we could call it Mayhem Monday if you want to, or any other um, kind of weird name, because it was an unusual day. Jesus has been named king. A king has been named. Jesus has been heralded, has been crowned, has been celebrated as being the king. But that was on Sunday. On Monday, I imagine, very similar to after some of our celebrations that we have, the following day, there's litter remnants and reminders of what happened the day before. I imagine the dusty road is still covered with browning leaves, Leaves that aren't quite as, branches that aren't quite as, you know, robust as they were the day before as they begin to die and decay. 
cloaks may be forgotten by people as they follow Jesus and were more concerned about crowning the king than picking up their garments that they had paved. I imagine that the remnants of yesterday's celebration are still there on Monday as Jesus and his disciples make their way from Bethany back into Jerusalem. I imagine that Jesus did not get much sleep that night. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 11, and if you want to follow along in your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. We will spend the majority of our day in Mark chapter 11 looking at this story. But in Mark chapter 11, it tells us that after this celebration, that Jesus went to the temple that Sunday evening and then came home. And I imagine that he did not get much sleep that night as he stressed, as he prayed, as he wrestled with what he knew had to happen based on what was going on. And so that Monday morning, they wake up and the Bible tells us in verse 12, I'm going from memory off that one, so if I'm wrong, Forgive me. Um, But in verse 12, the Bible tells us that Jesus was hungry that morning. And so Jesus and his disciples, as they began their journey back across the mountain to the path that leads down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and up into the Temple Mount, up into Jerusalem, as they began that journey on Mayhem Monday, if you will, as they begin that journey, the Bible says Jesus is hungry. And what happens next is a story that many people just don't want to even acknowledge that could possibly be true. Because what happens next is Jesus' only miracle of destruction He is about to pronounce a curse that goes against what everybody thinks Jesus is all about. And so scholars today look at this story and say, it couldn't possibly be true. It must be some sort of story that's told to make a point. But man, it's there. It starts off with Jesus is hungry. You don't start a fake story off with saying, oh, Jesus was hungry. And so Jesus is hungry, and picking up in whatever comes after the verse I quoted that I wasn't sure about. uh, Yes, I was right. Mark chapter 13, or Mark 11, verse 13. And so the Bible says, And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Now remember, this is leading into the Passover. The Passover, we know, happens in the spring. We know that this, it was not the season for figs. And so it's really easy to look and say, Jesus, why are you going to pick on this tree that is just providing shade and beauty and doing nothing else wrong? Some of you may know, and I don't know if our resident horticulturist is here today to prove me wrong, um, um, 
but fig trees, the cycle of the fig trees, most trees, fruit trees, you know, bloom, produce leaves, then produce flowers, and the flowers produce fruit. Fig trees are different where the, the fruit actually starts to grow, and the figs, um, as they develop, the leaves develop along with them. So when a fig tree has leaves, the figs are supposed to be there and be ready to eat. Even though it's not the season for that, this tree has leaves. I mean, the Bible is clear. This tree has leaves. And so Jesus sees it from afar and goes up to it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. Now, I mean, I get it. I understand why sometimes this story may be a little bit difficult for us. It may be difficult to say, but Jesus, I mean, this, it wasn't even the season for this. This tree just made, made a mistake. I mean, can we say the tree made a mistake? I don't know if the tree made a mistake or what it did. But it was not the season for figs. So even if figs had been on there, they probably would have been gross anyway because they wouldn't have been ripe yet. But that's not the point. The point is saying that the tree looked like it had figs. And Jesus, being creator and having spoken fig trees into motion and into being, probably knew what they were supposed to do. And so that day when this fig tree was not doing what it was supposed to do in the right way, he cursed it. He performed a miracle of murder. I mean, it just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to think. In response, the Bible says, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Spoiler alert. Why is my thing not working as craftily as I want it to. Spoiler alert, if you don't know the story, the tree dies. Okay? All right, we're going to just kind of skip to talking about that point before we get on with the, the rest of the stuff. But if you don't know this story, Jesus curses the tree, and in fact, it is miraculously dead the next day from the roots up. Not because it was about to die and all the leaves fell off and it looked dead. No, this thing died from the roots up, the Bible says. find this next phrase interesting that we find in Mark. Just the end of the verse, this little tag says, and his disciples heard it. My parents, I'm pretty sure, were convinced that as a child, I had selective hearing. Um, it's possible that my wife's convinced I have selective hearing now. I don't know. I choose not to ask her because I'm afraid of her answers. Um, but my parents were fairly certain that I had selective hearing as a child. From the basement, with my door closed, my parents could whisper the word, <laughs> and I would be there not even half a second later. Yes, what did you say? I heard ice cream, and what do I have to do to get it? You know, I was there. And always and forever growing up, I mean, my parents were convinced that we had selective hearing. And I don't know if they're right or wrong, but 
Sometimes you're just in tune with certain things that you want to hear ice cream. Yes? What is it? How can I get it? My parents were also convinced in my selective hearing it worked the other way. They could mention things like do your homework or come pick up your clothes in the living room. I never heard you say that, Mom. I'm sorry. You know, I, I never would hear those things, supposedly. Selective hearing, that's what it's about. But it's interesting to note, Mark points out that the disciples heard what Jesus said. Later on, just a few verses later, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, which we'll get to in a minute, Mark makes note that the scribes and chief priests heard what Jesus was saying. But here's the interesting thing. And I, you know, this is one of those times where, you know, as, as preachers, we just like to get into kind of talking about the Greek and whatnot. And trust me, today you don't have to go to school to know all these things, okay? Just look on the Internet. It's really easy to be a scholar these days. So don't think this is because I sat in some great class. No, this is just because I looked online and was like, oh, hey, that's cool. But the words that Mark uses here in English, we can't quite understand because the tenses of the verb just aren't there. But when he says that the disciples heard it, he uses the imperfect verb tense, which insinuates something that was continually happening. When he talks about the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and chief priests, hearing what Jesus said, he uses a different tense that denotes it just happened once. When we are listening to Jesus, and we are continually listening to Jesus, we will hear things that others may miss. We will hear things and understand things that others may not perceive because they are not continually listening to the voice of Jesus. When we want to see change happen in our lives, when we want to see change happen in the community, when we want to have that relationship with Jesus, it is something that has to happen continually, day after day. For all you VBS peoples, day after day after day. Is that the right action, Michaela? Where are you at? Michaela, I see Michaela's family, but Michaela's gone. Anyway, the day after day after day thing. It's something that must happen continually. And that Mark points out that disciples were listening to Jesus and heard it continually. But get this. Even if they heard it continually, they did not always understand what Jesus was saying. Just because we're listening to Jesus doesn't mean that we will always have and instantly have the clear picture of what he is saying. But we will listen, and when it makes sense, we will remember what was said. If we just hear something once and do not marinate in it, do not dwell in what is being said, we can end up like the chief priests and the scribes and miss the point. I need to take a moment to just kind of talk about how Mark tells this story. The, the, the fig tree, the curse of the fig tree story that Mark does, he kind of splits into two days. The, they, Jesus sees the fig tree on Monday, and Tuesday morning they're coming back on the same path, and they see this tree, and Peter, of course, notes that, oh, hey, look, the tree is dead just like you said it would be. 
Mark splits the stories up. Some of the other Gospels have the story, Matthew it says it immediately happened. I think there's no problem saying it immediately happened. A tree dying in one day, going from perfectly healthy to perfectly dead, is pretty immediate. As you may know, unfortunately, we've had a tree death on our property here. That beautiful giant blue oak died, which is now reliving in our lobby with amazing wood counters we have out there. But as we were looking at that tree and having arborists come and look at it, they were saying it looked like that tree probably met its, had its like death experience 30 years ago. Just based on what had happened, whatever caused that tree to die probably happened to it 30 years ago based on how the tree was trying to regrow around it, but it couldn't overcome that wound. It took 30 years for that tree to die. It took one day for this fig tree that Jesus cursed to die. That's pretty immediate. These other Gospels don't separate this story out. But Mark separates the story out, I think, because Mark likes sandwiches. Uh, there's a literary thing that scholars like to put on there about the Markin sandwich. Um, it's where he takes kind of a story and splits it up and sticks something in the middle that is meaty and good, and the other things help contain it and define it for us. I mean, sandwiches are delicious, but you want to know what's better than a sandwich? What's better than a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? If you just go to the meat, just get a spoon and go for peanut butter and jelly. Skip the bread, okay? Go to the meat. And so Mark here is kind of trying to point us and say, hey, understand this is what this is about. Because throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as, as a tree, as a vine. And so it would not go unnoticed by the first hearers of the story that Jesus was, in cursing this fig tree, was kind of pronouncing a curse on Israel. You know, if we curse the eagle as an American nation, if we curse that and saw it die kind of a thing, we'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, dude, that's our symbol, man. You know, fend back off. You know, the flag, you know, we respect the flag, the things that define our country. Here Jesus has cursed something that stands for the Israel nation. And they would understand that. And right in the middle of it, Jesus puts this story, this Mayhem Monday story, as he arrives at the temple. The Bible says, Jesus then went into the temple. Now, I want to help make sure that we are all together on understanding the, the, what the temple would have looked like. Because remember, the temple, from its beginnings in the wilderness with the Israelites, while it all had the same features, it had taken on many different looks. And the beautiful temple that Solomon had built and then was destroyed with the Babylonian captivity, as that, as that happened, that temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt. And what came next was kind of, a, I mean, even bigger. The temple had just grown and grown and grown. And so I want to show you this little clip here for all of us visual people. Remember, the Mount of Olives sits over here, and then there's the Kidron Valley, which is a very narrow valley. It's, it's kind of hard to call it a valley because it's not expansive like the Central Valley in California, but it is, it is a valley. There's a river. There's just a small crossing, and instantly the Temple Mount begins to, the, the mountain of Jerusalem begins to rise up. 
But I want to kind of put into perspective how the temple might have looked back in the day. Um, so watch this transformation. So you kind of saw Jerusalem go, and maybe just for fun, I'll see if this works. We'll play it again so you can see what's going. Here's like a current picture of Jerusalem that they then kind of put the temple on. And so Jesus would have been down in the kind of below the picture there as they had this fig tree experience. They cross over the valley and up into the temple. And the temple has many things. In the center of the temple is kind of what we consider the sanctuary, the temple where the altar is, the sacrifice, the holy and most holy places. Those are kind of in that tall center, upside down T looking thing. Um, everything else around it are these courtyards that were added on by the different builders of this. Eventually Herod, eventually Saul. I mean, this was kind of Solomon's portico is what that got called. But all of that area is kind of referred to as the temple. I know I promised you only one word exploration. I lied. There's two. Um, but only because I forgot I wanted to talk about this. Um, so, but the temple, understand, there's two words that are used in the Bible to refer to temple. Um, one of them refers to kind of the temple proper, meaning the expanse of just here is the temple footprint. The other refers to like the sanctuary, the holy place of the temple. When it says here in the Bible that Jesus entered the temple, it's using the word that is for the temple expanse, the proper area of the temple. And so Jesus, the Bible says, goes into the temple. And so, man, visual people, I'm really hitting it on the head for you today. I got lots of pictures. Okay, two, but still. Um, so here is kind of a closer look at the temple, and you can see here kind of it's labeled out. There's the Gentile courtyard, and then it goes in, and I cut the numbers off to make the picture look good, what they mean, but there's, there's the temple of the Israelites, temple of women, then you get into like the temple the, or the courtyards of those people, and you get onto the temple, and so that's the temple. And so Jesus comes in, and the Bible uses the word that Jesus came into the part of the temple that is the temple proper. And so the Bible goes on to say, Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now I have to say, there's two things. First off, for all you young memers out there, just want to say, if this story were told today, I imagine it would be told Jesus comes in, you know, and drives out the people who bought and sold, and then, then comes up to the money tables and just goes, yeet. I used it right. I used it. If you don't know what I just said, don't worry. I don't either. But I know I used it right. Jesus comes in as like, yeet, yeet, yeet. All of these things are being thrown out, being thrown around. Jesus comes in and does that. But it's interesting. I've always read this verse and heard this story. And I imagine from John we get the idea, the picture that Jesus makes a whip, the Bible tells us. And that's the picture we kind of had in all of the Bibles, children, children's Bible story books growing up. You know, that's what you saw with this story, Jesus with a whip. And I think of that. And I think of him driving out those who were buying or those who were selling. 
but it wasn't until this week that I just I, I stopped and thought and said, the Bible says that Jesus drove out those who bought and sold. So this was more than just somebody selling in the temple. This was about the people buying. And so it's not so much the, the oh, oh, the, the advantage. The, it's not so much the, the advantage that's being taken of these people that's what has Jesus mad. It's the whole process of this. But also when we understand where it took place in the temple, because Jesus would have been back in the courtyard area, in the Gentiles' courtyard where this would have been taking place. I always, growing up, and this will really be my only real in-depth Adventisty cultural type um, reference, but growing up, I always pictured this text kind of talking about why we never sold things in the sanctuary. You know, I don't know if anybody else has that sort of mindset growing up hearing this story. It's why we don't, it's why we just refrain from selling things in the sanctuary. But this story didn't take place in the sanctuary. It took place in the parking lot of the church. And Jesus still has an issue with what's going on. But it's not just those selling and taking advantage, saying that dove or that lamb is not good enough, hereby one approved by the priest with no blemishes, where then they probably just recycle the lambs and sell the ones that they took, that they confiscated, and so it becomes some sort of animal racket uh, type of a thing going on there. But it's not just that. It's those who bought and sold in the sanctuary. In Mark, he also goes out to say this, and I found this to be incredibly interesting. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Being lazy is not a new thing. Looking for shortcuts is not a new thing. It's interesting as I stand here and, you know, as we are in this church together, you know, I think about the the days when it was so much easier to get around. Like when the wall wasn't there, the drywall wasn't there, and I could just squeeze through the the studs. You know, it it was never like I'm going to take the doorway to walk around over there. It was just I'll go squeeze through the studs and I'll be there. People were looking for shortcuts in the temple. And so they would come through and they started using the temple area as a shortcut to get around. Now, this was not, this was not a mandate, a command given by Moses that I'm aware of. It was not a command, you must not walk through the sanctuary, the temple proper to get from point A to point B. This idea came from the Jewish laws. And so in the Jewish laws, it talks about people cannot carry their wares through the temple. And so this was kind of one of the rules that they came up with as they looked at how to keep the the temple holy, as they looked at ways to make sure that they avoided falling into sin. This is their rules. But understand this, and this is the first major point to grasp. Jesus was holding these people to their standards. Jesus was holding these people to a standard of behavior that they had set. If we try 
to make our own standards and obtain to our own standards and our own rules through our own power. Jesus will hold us to that, and we will fail every single time. We will fail. And so Jesus is there. Jesus is there stopping people. And just imagine, I mean, Jesus running around. I just, as I see this, I see Jesus running around, grabbing a stifle and saying, you, come man this door and stop people from coming in. And you, come take these tables out of here and drive these buyers and sellers out. Come and do these things. If we try to make our own rules and obtain salvation through them, we will fail. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. He's saying, the rules that you have given, the rules that you have done, you are not following yourselves and you are not holding to that standard. And so I am going to drive you out. The Bible tells us, another visual for you visual people, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me. Who has clothed me? He has. God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If we try to obtain righteousness through our own standards, we will fail. But what Jesus is reminding them is saying that, listen, While you are failing, know that I am here offering you a robe of righteousness. Because that's what Jesus was frustrated about with the people of that day, was that the justice and righteousness that they were supposed to be upholding as God's people, they were not. And so Jesus was there to remind them and say, listen, you've heard it said, you know these things. It's God who is going to clothe you with that righteousness. You must depend on God and stop trying to do it on your own. The scribes and chief priests, the Bible says, heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Jesus, the Bible kind of quotes him as going to the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, I'll have to look. Hold on a second. 61. Okay. All right. Very good. I was just having a little squirrel moment where I was like, wait a minute. Anyway, but don't worry. That's past. (laughs) Jesus teaches them from the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah about how his temple has become a, a den of robbers, how it's not a house of prayer for all nations. And this teaching is moving the people. But remember, we as we started today, just yesterday, Jesus has been crowned king. When we make Jesus king in our lives, we better mean it and better be ready for what he's going to do. Because what probably got Jesus killed, being that this is the last week, we're on Monday before the Friday of crucifixion. We're on Monday, and what probably drove that final decision, what drove that thing was that Jesus comes in, again, and cleans 
cleanses, clears the temple. Only a king has the authority to change or cleanse a temple. So just think about that for a second. Only a king has authority to change or cleanse a temple. So when Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple, what he is really saying is, I am king. The next question that is posed to Jesus following this in Mark is questions of authority. Where do you get your authority? They are concerned that Jesus is declaring himself king. Just the day before, the people, the, the Israelites, have declared Jesus king. And the following day, he comes in and acts as king and begins to clear the temple. When we ask Jesus to be king in our lives, he will come and clear our temple. But we better be ready for it because he's going to move things that we kind of like. He's going to get in and get to the things that we kind of don't want to go. But a king has the authority to change or cleanse a temple. The Bible is clear. Our bodies are that temple where the spirit dwells. Jesus wants to come in and be king of our lives and wants to clear us out of all of our legalistic rules and regulations that we put into ourselves and wants to say, hey, I have come to cover you with a robe of righteousness. Jesus wants to remind us that he is king and he has authority. And when we give Jesus authority as king, he will do that. And so in this Manic Monday, in this Mayhem Monday story, the story that just seems like it doesn't fit what Jesus is, who Jesus should be in our lives, we see Jesus doing things that we really want him doing in our lives. There is hope and there is promise and there is this awesome reminder of this is what Jesus has come to do is to drive away, to drive out these things. Jesus as king has authority in our lives if we let Jesus be king. The story continues. It talks about the tree that dies. There's conversation on it. And then we get into the last section of this story where Jesus, in his response to his disciples that Tuesday morning, says, have faith in God. As they marvel at that tree that's, as, that's lying there dried out, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Don't miss this point. So often we think about God giving us the ability to move a mountain. But in the context of this story, as they are walking back down the same path from Bethany, past the tree, down the Mount of Olives, Jesus talking to them saying, You can move this mountain behind him. Is the temple gleaming in the sunlight? The beauty of it, of the morning hitting it, is just beyond compare. And Jesus is saying, this mountain that stands in your way, this mountain where in just a few short days, 
he will be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. This mountain that contains the religious leaders that have supposed to have been leading these people along, that contains the oppression of religious hypocrisy. This mountain that contains those people, this mountain that holds everything that is about to be, that is wrong with the religion of that day, that is wrong with how they are mistreating the words of the prophets and the things that Jesus wanted them to do. This mountain, when things stand in our way, it is not just any old mountain that God wants us to move. It is this mountain. And if our leaders, if people that we trust are leading us into areas where we should not be, we need to move this mountain. It is not just any mountain. It is this mountain. Jesus continues, therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. This text is something that's used often by Jesus. And in a lot of the other places, there's a few other words added. Whatever you ask, In my name. Believe that you receive them and you will have them. When we ask Jesus to be king of our life, we are essentially taking on his name. My wife, blessed Anna, wonderful and sweet Anna, when we got married, decided to take on my name. That means something. She's kind of saying, you know what? I'm going to identify myself as part of you. I'm going to identify myself and take on what it truly means to be a McMillan. Now, she had no idea, but she took it on anyway. She had no idea what it would be. And the advent of text messaging and the prolific way my family can text message is even just a, not even just a drop in the bucket of the what it means to be a McMillan. But she took that on. In essence, I kind of took on what it meant to be a Hartfield as well. But when we take on someone's name, it means we're taking on the whole of who that person is. And so when when we talk about asking in Jesus' name, when we talk about that and calling ourselves, saying that we are Christians, we are taking on the name of Christ, that means something because the name of Jesus, the Bible tells us demons are driven out in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, Jesus, death is defeated. In the name of Jesus, salvation is brought to believers. In the, the Bible says in the name of Jesus, it is a strong tower. The name of Jesus is a place where the righteous can go and find refuge. In the name of Jesus, there is power. And when we ask these things, when we say, God, I want you to be a part of my life. I want you to be king of my life and come in and move these mountains out. Come in and get rid of what's there. We are taking on that name. 
when we buy into the whole of who Jesus is, or we buy into the whole of who Jesus is when we take his name. In the name of Jesus, when we call ourselves by that name, we buy into the whole of who he is. And Jesus wants us to be mountain movers. Jesus wants us to understand that the things that lie in our way, the obstacles that we see, the things in our lives that we know need to be gotten rid of, Jesus is saying, I am that name. I provide that power. It is me who can make you a new creation. I hope today that as we sing hosannas to our God, as we've come here to be with the church, that we will not forget what Jesus wants to do in our lives. That we will not forget that he has said, listen, the mountains that need to move from your life, the things that are in there that need to be gone, Jesus has that power to move any mountain in his name. There is no mountain too big in our lives that God cannot handle. And so I pray that in the name of Jesus that we will allow God through faith to move our mountain.